Hello and welcome again to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. Hello, I'm Christine Burns. In this episode, doctors debate the pros and cons of delaying puberty in young people who are likely to change their gender so as to buy more time for them to make such an important decision and prevent irreversible body changes that would otherwise take place. Some months ago, I interviewed the mother of an intensely gender dysphoric child who explained the hard decisions she had to make for her daughter's safety and happiness. As puberty approached, her daughter became more and more suicidal at the prospect of a masculinizing puberty. Doctors predicted her eventual height and bone structure would mean that she could never avoid standing out as a woman if nothing was done. Yet specialists in Britain required such a puberty to complete before they were prepared to intervene. Faced with this, the mother, like many, took her child to America for treatment. The Royal Society of Medicine convened a conference in October to discuss the dilemma Many clinicians were concerned at the biased line-up of speakers, though. In frustration, Professor Richard Green, one of the world's best-known specialists and former head of Britain's largest gender clinic, convened a rival preemptive conference at Imperial College. I went along and spoke to the various specialists. First, I spoke to Richard Green himself. I asked him why he had felt it necessary to stage a rival conference in this way. It was scheduled very late in the day, as it were, ten weeks ago, because of the Royal Society of Medicine conference, which I felt was a very one-sided and unhappily biased presentation of the critical issues within the treatment for adolescent transsexuals or adolescents with gender identity disorder. There was no representation on that program of the international diversity of approach, particularly with respect to the U.S., Canada, and the clinicians from the Netherlands. And this has to be presented. This has to be presented to the UK professional and lay communities, because in my view, uh, the UK procedures are wrong. And this has to be changed. And as long as we don't publicize the alternatives in other major countries and major medical centers, then I thought that the UK position was going to remain static as as it is and stagnating as it has been. One of Richard's guest speakers is a highly controversial figure at present, Canadian psychologist Dr Kenneth Zucker. Dr Zucker is under fire from some rights campaigners over his alleged support for certain ways of classifying trans people and for his reported methods of trying to cure very young children of their cross-gender identification. You can hear him later. Dr Zucker began his career in this field as a protégé of Richard Green, however, so I asked Richard for his views about that controversy. Well, Ken's attracting the advert. The adverse uh, attention that Ken's attracting uh, is nothing to do with the adolescent issues that he addressed today. There are people who feel that what Ken does with pre-adolescents who have gender identity disorder, there are people who object to what, what he is doing. Ken's view, and I will say that I understand it and share a lot of it, is that a lot of children, young children with GID, aren't pre-GID adolescents, but they are, from my research and from research of others, 
that these are probably pre-gay kids, okay? And they're unhappy, not so much because they're unhappy being boys or girls. They're unhappy because of their their whole social adjustment in a sex-stereotyped pediatric culture is skewed. And so they're stigmatized as kids. They generally have a lot of conflict with their parents, especially fathers, if, if, if they're boys. And that my approach with kids like this in the past has been for them to see the world of gender as little kids, not in black and white, but in grays. You don't have to be a jock if you're a boy. You can have sensitivities and artwork and issues like that. And you can get along with your father doing non-athletic things as well. And if you can do all these things with a kid, you can make the kid happier, whoever he or she is, in that age. Okay? And it has nothing to do with later sexual orientation, because I don't think you can do anything that changes sexual orientation. There might be some kids who, if they couldn't see any way out of the trap of being a boy or a girl, might have evolved into adolescence or gender identity disorder, that you might actually be able to prevent that outcome. You mean they may have rationalized it as a Yeah, solution. I think there are a lot of ways to become gender identity as adults or as adolescents. I think to a lot of people it is hardwired, the term, but not for everybody. And I think that there are life choices, life decisions, and circumstances that influence how you see the way you have to go. And I think it's better to be gay than be transsexual in this world. I think it's better to be straight than be gay, and I think it's better to be gay than be transsexual because of all the social problems and the stigma and the misunderstandings that are attached to, to those minority gender and sexual groups. So if some of those kids become gay instead of transgender as, a, as adolescents or adults, I think it's probably a, a good thing. And if they're happier as being little kids with their parents, that's even better. Richard Green there. Well, as I've said, we'll hear from Dr. Zucker himself later in this program. First, we'll hear from a couple of the other speakers who kicked off the first half of the day's proceedings. The first presenter was Dr. Marvin Beltzer from the University of Southern California School of Medicine. Marvin explained to the audience how he first became involved in treating trans teenagers in a program tackling sexually transmitted diseases. These young people had been thrown out of their families, he said. They couldn't get jobs. Sex work was not only necessary to eat and survive, but also the only way they could have any prospect of funding medical treatment, which is generally refused by America's health insurers. Marvin described the factors which informed his approach and how he came to the view that temporary suspension of puberty helped normalise the development of trans teens. In the lunch break, I asked him first how he would characterise the nub of the debate taking place. Uh... It seems to me that there isn't a huge debate going on today. I think there's more kind of a scientific, you know, curiosity of how best to help these children, adolescents, in terms of, you know, having them have the best emotional, physical, psychological outcomes. I think what we say is we want all these kids to have as best quality of life as they can. I think there's questions because of a lack of scientific studies to know you know, when's the right time to treat? What's the best way to assess them? Are the assessments consistent for children? Do they predict what's going to happen in adulthood? And, you know, I, I'm very... I said... Uh, I have a, a positive attitude that when groups like this meet, we, we move forward in the debate and come up with better ideas on how to treat people. And you know, gives me a lot of ideas to take home and try, and I think that's probably where we're at right now. Is you know, you know, offering more and more services, getting more and more data, 
you know, helping families and parents. It's, it's going to be really interesting to hear from the families and parents uh, this afternoon because I think they'll move us perhaps in a little bit different direction. As you say, this is a little bit of the, the converted preaching to the converted here. Yes. Um, but the, there are critics of, of this process. And what, what would you say to them? Well, I think that there are different types of critics of this whole treatment for trans youth. And I think there's critics who are doing it based on a moral and ethical standpoint. And I think from that standpoint, they're very dangerous because they cut because they cause a lot of harm, because they want to promote their viewpoints on other people. I mean, I'm a believer that, you know, if, if you have strong moral and ethical values and you want to keep them within your own family, at some level you have that right. But when you make them into governmental institutions and medical policies, it's very, very dangerous. I mean, the United States, you know, a lot of the policies prevent research from ever getting funded. They prevent us from moving forward and learning because they won't even let us study, you know, you know certain areas or provide funding for certain areas. I think there's other people who, who don't have moral and ethical value differences, but they have different senses of what's the best treatment and they have very strong views and I think they're studying those views and I can't say I agree with them but at least they're taking a scientific approach to learn what's right and what's wrong and you know I hope that you know the peer review of their research will take into account their methodologies so that you know if they come out with a certain finding that is it really justified or were their methodologies flawed or not and I hope that their patients who are often the research subjects aren't being harmed I think we need to keep a close eye on people who are doing research to make sure that what they're doing is moral and ethical I didn't sense that I saw any of or heard any of that today but I know that a lot of my patients, you know, are, you know, especially the parents, you know, they're very angry against the Toronto group about the things that come out of there and they feel like it's very wrong. You know, they're entitled to their opinion. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know enough about what they do to know whether the services are biased and whether they're really helping their kids, their families hurting them or not, I think that's something we have to watch. In my personal conversations today, I think I actually feel a little bit better about the Toronto group than probably coming in, because coming in, all I really had heard is from families. You've touched on one of the problems, which is that opponents would, would call for a lot more data on follow-up, and we just don't have that information. Are, are there any other parallels in medicine that you can think of where it's necessary to proceed perhaps cautiously on the basis of we don't know, but we think this is the best way to go? Uh, I think there are parallels in medicine in terms of you know, when do you make clinical decisions without a lot of data. And I think the we start hearing some of that discussion, which is when you have a disease or a condition, and I want to call gender identity a disease, I just want to call it a condition, but there are diseases that have very bad outcomes if left untreated. In those cases, it's certainly okay to try to treat to the best you can, even though there aren't data available. Certain, you know, there's a brain cancer and there isn't any data. You're not gonna let it just do nothing and watch them die. You're gonna try to treat it. I think as we get lots of data that untreated, undiagnosed 
gender identity disorder causes a tremendous amount of morbidity and even mortality through depression and suicide. I think it makes practitioners like myself and my colleagues say we have to treat it. We're willing to take the risk. We're willing to treat earlier and earlier. And we do this through basically giving the families the best informed consent we can. And if we feel like the families, which includes the parents, guardians, and the children, if we feel like they're capable of making an informed consent decision, and as a practitioner, I feel that the risks don't outweigh the benefits based on the limited knowledge we have, then you know the families and the kids are willing to get to make the decisions. Marvin Belts are there. And when he referred to the Toronto group incidentally, he was alluding to the controversies surrounding Kenneth Zucker and his colleagues. Next, I spoke to Dr. Anna-Lou de Vries from the gender team at the Free University in Amsterdam. The Dutch group are universally recognised as having the greatest experience of treating trans youngsters and following up the results. They attribute their 100% success story so far to the careful pre-evaluation they do. Anna-Lou also claimed that it's possible to suspend puberty for up to four years. Her team's experience, she said, is that any physiological issues, such as loss of bone density, are temporary, being quickly compensated if the suppression treatment is ended or cross-sex hormone treatment is begun. The time bought in this way enables young people to reach the age of 16 or more before that kind of step is taken, though. Once again, I spoke to Anna Lou during the lunch break after her presentation, and I began by asking how the Dutch team had started. Um, well, as I explained before, it, it started actually by the work of Peggy Gohan, and later on she was working together with uh, Henriette de la Mare, who is a child endocrinologist, and uh, it's, it's now over 20 or almost 30 years that they've been working together, and they have really, they really evolved or... or made this program possible where we re are treating well almost a hundred adolescents now with puberty blocking medication uh, before going on uh, with cross-sex hormones and then um, sex reassignment surgery when adolescents are turning 18 yes in many respects what you're doing is world leading uh, what would you say are the the outcomes that you've got so far and how far have you been able to follow those up so we didn't do all the work yet so we, we now what, what we now know, now know about the uh, outcome is that when the uh, youth has been on puberty blocking medication for quite a few years so when they are turning 16 just before starting cross-sex hormone they're doing really fine and they're actually doing better than when they started with the uh, puberty blocking medication and it's really promising I think and we are we think and we are really um, we have a lot of trust actually in the outcome data after sex reassignment surgery what we see clinically is that all these youngsters are doing really fine have good uh, go to school have uh, do have friends um, are very much supported by their families and it's really I think they're really doing very well now whilst it wouldn't be ethical not to treat people with the treatment that you feel works is there any sort of control that you can use to compare the progress of your patients with with those in another following some other form of regime 
Yeah, well, of course, it's very difficult. I mean, what we could do is control, for example, uh, with the uh, British uh, protocol uh, in, the, in the UK, as you know, adolescents have to wait far much longer than uh, the adolescents in um, the gender dysphoric adolescents in the Netherlands. But then, um, well, society factors come in, and it's very difficult to compare, I think, because the society in the uh, UK seems to be very different from the one in uh, Holland. So it is really difficult to find a good comparison group. So what the best I think I think we can do is uh, compare our all our data and outcome, yeah, with uh, with with the population, the nor- what what we call the normal population. And um, well, if they're doing as the as as their age mates are doing, I think that then we do are doing a, a good job. And what would you say to those UK clinicians who are reluctant to endorse that kind of treatment in the UK? Um, what would I say? I would say to them, look at our data, which we've brought out now. And, well, um, yeah, really look at their own data and collect data and, and go... Uh, through it and see if it's really uh, so harmful uh, the way they think it is. Anna Ludovries there. During the afternoon session, we had the chance to meet two teenagers, a trans boy and a trans girl, who were in the later stages of treatment at the Dutch clinic. Their testimony, along with that from their proud mothers, was really interesting for many of the clinicians to hear. The Dutch families were followed by two English families, including the mother who took her trans daughter to America for similar treatment and who I interviewed earlier this year. This time she was joined by her daughter too. I can't feature any of the families as their participation in the conference was subject to assurances of anonymity. After the conference though, I caught up on two of the other clinicians who contributed. First, as promised, I spoke to Dr. Kenneth Zucker from the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. I began with the apparent distinction between his approach to pre-pubertal children, the controversial area, and adolescence. Ken Zucker, you've become in the recent months a, a very controversial figure, particularly among trans campaigners in, in the United States. Uh, one of the things that struck me in your in your talk today is that you met, you draw a very clear distinction between your philosophy for treating uh, children um, and adolescents. Um, would you like to expand on that? Well, I think that people uh, have various criticisms against me, which I won't go into in this brief little discussion, but. I am certainly always willing to engage in dialogue with anyone who wants to talk to me, and I'm always willing to send people papers that I've written so they can see what I actually say about things. Um, This conference was focusing on hormonal treatment of adolescents, and what I presented here is what I am calling a developmental approach to therapy of children and adolescents uh, with GID or gender dysphoria. And what I talked about here was that our group is 
using the Dutch protocol with regard to suppression of puberty um, or recommendation of cross-sex hormonal treatment in conjunction with psychosocial counseling or psychotherapy after we've done a careful assessment and why we've adopted this approach includes various uh, factors but I would say that overall what me and my group is concerned about is the well-being of our patients we want everybody to have the best possible adaptation to life as possible and I think with regard to young children we take a much more open perspective on what the course of their gender identity development is going to be and in part that's based on theoretical assumptions that we make about development in part it's based on data because we have followed a lot of kids over the years and we know that a lot of young children with GID don't keep their GID they lose it and as talked about by somebody else today some of those kids wind up being gay other kids wind up being straight so we take a much more open perspective with regard to what is going to happen with the little kids with the adolescents I think we've moved towards a perspective that for a lot of them the best way to have a good life is to go through a gender transition which includes the hormonal and surgical aspects and we support that because our goal is what's the best way to help this kid have a good adaptation we don't recommend it for all of the kids but we don't automatically rule it out either so I mean very clearly today's conference was about that latter group primarily of, of, of adolescent uh, children who've already been screened and if they were going to exhibit being gay or lesbian then they would already have been filtered out. On that point uh, I don't totally agree with you because I think in contrast to some of the speakers today that identity is an ongoing process that gets constructed over time. I don't think you're born with an identity. Uh, I don't think, for example, one of the speakers here who was out about his religion was born that way. I think it was constructed. There might be a biological predisposition, but it's constructed. And I think that some of the adolescents we see do fluctuate between a trans identity and a gay identity. And we help them negotiate what's the best identity for them. So even in adolescence, it can go back and forth. But if you look at the children in that case, and without without sort of trying, wanting to push you, you too hard, it, the, your critics are seem to be presenting that you you have one view, which is that uh, transsexuality would be a bad outcome for those children. So that you would wish to, I'm I'm, I'm voicing the words okay. of your critics, um, that you want to avoid that at all costs. Well, I think making decisions about um, what should the goals of therapy be is a process that one works on with families and you come to an agreement and so um, 
I think the question that we think about is given all of the difficulties that we've heard today about what growing up trans is like and the complexities of the biomedical treatment including the surgery if that outcome can be avoided and a kid grows up happy with his or her gender in relation to their birth sex and they're having a generally good adaptation to life is that an easier development developmental path to go down than the other path and that will be decided by data Canadian psychologist Ken Zucker there notably the only speaker taking part in both this and the separate conference organized by the Royal Society of Medicine and perhaps the nearest thing to an advocate of puberty delaying therapy which that second conference will hear of course it's easy as a result to claim as Richard Green did that the RSM conference is significantly biased towards the voices of those who oppose puberty delaying therapy on the other hand this conference as you've heard was hardly balanced either when even its most controversial and allegedly conservative practitioner basically agrees with all the other speakers this means that neither side among the clinicians can go without criticism the duty on them all as professionals is to be debating professionally not holding separate conferences of their respective believers my last guest is seen by some british families as something approaching a saint one of the mothers who spoke during the afternoon broke down as she expressed the belief that without him her daughter would by now be dead norman spack from the harvard university medical school has treated over 70 young patients in a way that's similar to the dutch approach until recently he'd been seeing an average of 5 new patients a year In the last 2 years though, as his name has spread around the world, he's been seeing more than 20. This conference was the first time he'd presented his clinic's numbers. I asked him how it could be that clinicians could find themselves in such diametrically opposed positions. Well, I I actually don't know how I can't speak for people who take the opposite point of view from me because uh I don't I don't I can't really chart that that course of development. I can only imagine that they must have had some a particularly negative experiences um and that um about particularly people who've changed their minds or whatever and so they're very suspicious of everyone uh who comes and thinks each one is somebody who is someone else in hiding you know uh, but um and and you know I actually have to tell you that my first exposure to people who were trans was actually quite negative albeit brief It was back in the early to mid 1970s and I was a fellow in adolescent medicine and I we went on, I worked uh, one night a month on a van that went all around town taking care of street youth. In one area there were a number of drag queens and kids working the sex industry but who were clearly uh, presenting anyway in female and um, they were difficult people but I also understood that they like many of the what we called runaways weren't runaways they were throwaways but there was a very you know uh there was an air of fun about it in them but it wasn't exactly a a, a group that i had much uh, more experience with but that was it and then my next experience was in 1985 with a recently graduated harvard student who lived as a man in a university with roommates who knew everything uh, about 
him and uh, accepted him for who he was, but he had never been treated. And because I had endocrine background, although running adolescent medicine practice and I was taking care of people in their 20s, someone said, you know, Norman Spack may be an appropriate guy to treat him. And he taught me everything. Uh, he ta- he told me, taught me so much about uh, the life of the trans person and the, the, all the uh, problematic issues with family. Didn't have problematic issues at school because uh, nobody knew. Uh, and then introduced me to the larger community of people that he had some support from. And that then ended up with a, my first population of patients were in their 20s and early 30s, uh, none of whom had ever had suppression of puberty. I was really the initiating step, which was cross-hormones. And, you know, it just sort of developed from there. Then as people said, well, as I became somebody who was... A lot of people knew me all around the area because I had the only adolescent medicine practice and private practice in New England with a woman friend of mine. And, uh, I mean, sexuality and things related to sexual orientation and were just part and parcel of our practice. And if you're dealing with 12 to 25, 30-year-olds. Um, so then the age group started to shift downward a little and that, and because I, I started to see kids pretty much about to get out of high school or in college. And that's pretty much how it, uh, it happened. These people were so convincing. In many cases in those days, they were coming in by themselves. It was only uh, somewhat later that um, I started to see some um, uh, older teens who were brought in by parents. And... Um, and it, gradually, and probably by 1990, I probably had seen somewhere around 30, 40, 30 to 40 people. But the next thing that happened, maybe a little less, because the next thing that happened was probably in the early 90s, um, a, for whatever reason of retirement or death or move or whatever, there were about four or five very well-respected doctors in the New Boston area who had been taking care of adults who had uh, no, no longer available to the social workers who were the key gender specialists. They, they asked me whether I would take care of adults, and I said, what, are you kidding? I'm, I'm, you know, I consider going up to 30. You're going to now send me 40- and 50-year-old people? And I, I just then I was uncomfortable as to whether my, you know, I was working half-time for Children's Hospital who were caring for my malpractice insurance, and I said, would they cover it, you know, for me to do this? And, in fact, they encouraged it. They, knew, they thought I would learn a lot. And, and uh, so I actually took a separate – when I went full-time to Children's in 98, I still kept a once-a-month office Saturday hours for adults. So since 1998, you've been, cho- you've been treating children or, or young adults? Uh, well, I would say that I've been treating uh, probably – I probably started to get to under 15 uh, by around 98, which is the time I became clinical. I went full-time to the Boston Children's as full-time clinical director of the endocrine division. And, and while since I was there full-time, um, it's, it was only logical that if I were going to see people who were of under 21, who were of age to be new patients at Children's, there was an advantage to seeing them at Children's because there I could take their, the hospital could take their insurance, whereas if I saw the people on the Saturday hours, I, was, I didn't have the ability to bill insurance, so the patients had to self-pay. And how many children have you seen in that time? 
Oh, wow. Well, I think we've just reported today that, um, you know, this was the first time I actually looked at it, and we went back to 98 because that was the time we decided. That, so if you, there was a 26-year-old in that population, but I would say seven. if you go up to 21, um, if you go up to age 21, we would say 71. And I would guess that about half of them are under... Probably half of I, it's too bad because I don't have the I don't have the uh, I don't think I have the slides with me. I might actually if you want to hold them, but I can tell you. But it, I, probably a good half of them are uh, probably under fifteen. But I would say that at least ha- half of them are at the are already ten or four or five. I looked at that, so about half of them are just about completed puberty when I saw when I saw them. The difference is we formerly. Co- um, we opened the gender management service clinic. See, I was seeing people just on my own as part of my usual practice. But in, in a, just this past February, we opened the gender management service of Children's Hospital, which is a combined service between ourselves, psychology, and urology. So we see people with disorders of sex development, and they asked me to bring in the kids who are transgendered. And and ever since that became publicized, all kinds of newspaper articles and magazine articles and call it and the the, the hospital itself was very proud of it. So it its own stuff was just caught, wrote about it. Um, the number of young patients has risen progressively in the past three years. Much more kids under even pre, even. Six, seven, eight-year-olds whose parents know we're not going to do anything. They just want to meet us. Now, you can understand in, in elder teens that they're coming because of perhaps of what they've seen on the Internet. What's driving the, the referrals from, from parents of, of smaller children? Well, they, the parents have seen things on the Internet. I mean, I, there was a question today about, so how do these parents find out? Well, they know There's, there is a very active... Uh, there are several active uh, chat lines and discussion groups among uh, parents of trans kids. And um, even parents who don't know, they just start Googling in parent of trans child and whatever, will get to it. And I actually don't, li- I don't keep it on- online as a subscriber because uh, I found I was just ending up and- answering questions all day of people who I didn't really know, and I was afraid of giving medical advice to me. But um, there's no question, and that's how they found about me. Uh, you know, in other words, they, they, the people who come to me say, "Well, they heard about me the first day they went to the chat line." Last question: If there was one piece of advice you could give to clinicians in the UK about uh, how to handle young people with gender issues, what would that be? I think, I think that. Um, you should think of them as heroic, that um, they didn't get this way by choice. And what I see that by the time somebody has come to me, of all the steps they've had to take and all the abuse they may have had to take and the convincing of the first parent who had to convince the second parent, I, I, w- I, would, I would like to make sure that the, that the also make sure that they understand that there's nothing more precious to a person as to who they are. Norman's back there, providing the perfect sentiment on which to end. 
I'm Christine Burns, and you've been listening to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'll be back soon with another human interest feature, but for now it's goodbye. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. I